Hello everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever you are. Thank you for listening to episode nine, part two of the Howard Dully story. Before I get started, I'd like to give out some shout outs and thank yous to everyone out there who listens to this podcast, who supports me, who gives me lots of encouragement and positive and constructive feedback. So thank you all, everybody. Next, I am going to thank the people who gave me some iTunes reviews and also have supported me recently on Patreon. So here we go. Okay, coming from iTunes in the US, I want to say thank you to Emily Loves History, Todd Hedges, Tiger Lily Martinez, and Princess Peculiar. Coming from the UK, I want to thank Jem X Morris, and from New Zealand, Flynn FD. Thank you guys so much for leaving me such wonderful reviews on iTunes. Next, I want to thank the following people for giving me some wonderful support on Patreon. First of all, I want to thank Stephanie Villarreal. Thank you, Stephanie, so much. I really appreciate it. Peculiar Mayhem. This is a podcast lover and freak and a friend who is coming up with her own podcast very soon, and you can find her on Patreon as well. So maybe go give it a look. To the Salty Canadian, Sarah, who also has a wonderful podcast. So maybe, could you please go check her out as well? Salty Canadian. Also to Christy from Canadian True Crime, and I'm sure you've all heard of Christy with her wonderful and amazing True Crime podcast. Go check her out. Thank you, Christy. And last but not least, to Sandra Wickham, who I'm pretty sure is related to me. Actually, she is. That's my mom, and I didn't force her to do it. She's been a wonderful and amazing support from, to me from the very beginning. Thanks, Mom. All your support means so much to me in any way. As a listener, as someone who gives a review on iTunes, which really helps me to get my podcast out there, and that's free for those that maybe don't have the funds or, or wish to show support in that way. That would be great if you could go and leave uh, a review. Also to those who support me on Patreon and who listen to my show and are a part of the Facebook discussion group, Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments, who just give me their support, feedback, just check in every day. Thank you guys. And on Twitter, at Stat, underscore tales, who we also have great discussions and, and funny comments back and forth. So if you wish to check me out there, I'd love to hear from you. So thank you. Now I'd like to get started on part two of Howard Dully's story. Just a word of warning. It will be jam-packed with a lot of information. So it will be intense and it's very unsettling and disturbing. Like I've said before, I think it's really important that as many people know about Howard's story in life. 
it's as relevant now in regards to treatment of people with mental wellness struggles as to trying to stop history from repeating itself. So let's begin. Howard Dulley. I'm a bus driver. I'm a husband, a father, and a grandfather. I'm into doo-wop music, travel, and photography. I am also a survivor. In 1960, I was 12 years old. I was given a transorbital or ice pick lobotomy. My stepmother arranged it. My father agreed to it. Dr. Walter Freeman, the father of the American lobotomy, told me he was going to do some tests. It took 10 minutes and cost $200. The surgery damaged me in many ways, but it didn't fix me or turn me into a robot. So my family put me into an institution. I spent the next four decades in and out of insane asylums, jails and halfway houses. I was homeless, alcoholic, and drug addicted. I was lost. I knew I wasn't crazy, but I knew something was wrong with me. Was it the lobotomy? Was it something else? As you heard, that's Howard, the gentleman himself, reading an excerpt from his book called My Lobotomy. You can pick it up most anywhere and it is an amazing read, so I would highly suggest it. It helped give me direction on telling his story as well. Not only is it important that his story is told and not forgotten, we need to do what we can to stop history from repeating itself. Let's keep the dialogue open and going so that we can continue to move forward towards education, getting rid of this horrible stigma and advocating and moving forward in the future. And we're all just people living our lives. We've all gone through something and we should never have to go through it alone. I last left off discussing the sick and dangerous relationship between Lou and Dr. Freeman. Freeman found himself in the most perfect relationship, or so he thought. A mother insisting that her child be lobotomized. A boy with enough high energy in him to wrap a crazy diagnosis around. A child in which to advance his sick lobotomy research. The stage is set. The meeting and the interviews begin. And these interviews are like a chapter in a horror story moving towards a climax. Evil stepmother, mad scientist, an innocent, unsuspecting victim walking blindly into a dark forest. At the same time that Lou had first met with Freeman, she had managed to have Howard removed from his home. He was sent to live with a lovely couple named Mr. and Mrs. Black. They helped to raise Howard's father, Rodney, when he was a child as you remember, he lived in many places, moved from home to home as a young boy, man as well. The Blacks treated Howard with such kindness. Mr. Black would do father-like activities with Howard, like fishing and playing catch, just doing guy father things that he wasn't getting from Rodney. And Mrs. Black was motherly. 
As corrupt as it was to have Howard removed from his home, it was a blessing in disguise that he went to Mr. and Mrs. Black's home because they were a loving couple who treated him with kindness. He treated him like a son. Rodney was against Howard being seen by Freeman and disagreed with his diagnosis. In fact, there was a terrible screaming match that took place between Lou and Rodney. And of course, Lou always managed to get her way. She was stone cold, persistent, an immovable and psychotic object that would relentlessly work away at something until she pulverized it. Walter requested an interview with Mr. and Mrs. Black to hear what they had to say about Howard's behavior. He interviewed Mr. Black first, and this is what he said to Freeman. Mrs. Dolly is perpetually talking, admonishing, correcting, and getting worked up into a spasm. I love the way they spoke back then. I can just picture someone in a spasm, especially Lou. Sorry. Continued quote. Whereas her husband is impatient, explosive, and rather brutal. In fact, he won't let the boy speak for himself, and he calls him a numbskull, a dimwit, and other uncomplimentary names. Does that sound like parental abuse to a child to you? Because it definitely does to me. Why didn't Walter have these parents investigated? Why weren't they charged? Who was protecting Howard? Why didn't Freeman protect him? It was like he was just reading some notes without feeling or empathy. And you know what? I can just see him stroking his gross beard saying, hmm, interesting. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway. Mr. Buck furthermore reported that when Howard was with them, he acted like a normal boy. He looked after himself. He straightened things out. He was polite and considerate, washed his hands, helpful at church and the church picnic, and helped a boy to play miniature golf who was struggling with it. Now that sounds exactly the opposite to what Lou is reporting. So Freeman, in his twisted little mind, interpreted the meeting as this. Now get this. You heard what I just said, and this is what Freeman got out of it. Howard shows frustration, has confidence in no one, has a mind of his own. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. <laughs> Would try to please anyone he could trust as a friend. Feels hemmed in. Doubts he can please anyone or do anything right. Would like to be trusted. Must be handled with positive and friendly attitude. Am I in the twilight zone? How? How do you get that from the interview? And does he, like, does he have opposite hearing syndrome? Yeah, I, I just made that up, but I think it's... I think it's probably relevant to many people. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm a little ranty today. Back to the story. After such a favorable report about Howard, Lou calls back three days later freaking out and saying that Howard was unbelievably defiant with a savage look on his face, and at times she was almost afraid he would harm her or someone else. She did this days after a positive meeting with Black. Is that a coincidence? No. And I don't believe in coincidences. Howard remembers this time feeling very sad and lonely. He remembers sitting on a swing in his backyard by himself crying. During this time, Lou also went to Howard's pediatrician 
with bullshite complaints, and the pediatrician said that there was nothing wrong with Howard. Lou never went back again. So Lou, getting nowhere with any other doctor, she centered all her attention and energy on Freeman. Howard was having troubles at school as well, and the school gave up on him, saying that he was unreachable. But don't forget that his father was a teacher. That is just so messed up in so many ways. His father, a teacher, was obviously setting a standard of lack of care and interest, and the teachers followed that. So, of course, Lou steps it up another notch with a new report to Freeman. It's the same stuff, but of course, she always has to add something new and outrageous to it. So here are more of her bullshite lies. You know what? All due respect to Howard Dully, I just can't see this happening. If I chuckle here, it's not about him. It's because of the absolute asinine things that she comes up with. Monkey-like gestures and mannerisms. His eyes get bloodshot when he's tired. Well, so do mine. Facial muscles contract and twitch. Eyes shift in peculiar manner. Shows inward suffering but can't describe. Think about that. Shows inward suffering but can't describe. She recognized he was hurting but was unable to form words for it. And she was the cause. I'm shaking my head. This is really great. This shows how off her rocker she was. Lou told Freeman, she admitted to Freeman that she had two dreams about a Howard. In one dream, she was trying to spank Howard, but she was missing an arm. What was her subconscious trying to tell her? I don't know. Don't hit the boy. In another dream, she was biting Howard. And when she woke up, she was biting her pillow. She admitted this to Freeman. Can you imagine waking up biting your pillow? That's a little extreme. Like, in her dream, she was biting Howard. And then she woke up biting her pillow. Who was the one that needed psychiatric treatment? How did Freeman not see that she needed a lobotomy? And that's not even funny. I shouldn't even said that because no one deserved a lobotomy. So after this meeting with Lou, Walter requested a meeting with Mrs. Black. And this is how this meeting went. She said, Rodney, Howard's father, did not get love as a child and he shows no love to Howard. Howard is hungry all the time, just like his father was. They were big, growing, hungry boys. And Rodney would say to Howard, why do you have to eat now? So following Lou's predictable behavior, three days later, she went back crying to Freeman. And then Freeman met with Rodney. And this is what he wrote. Mr. Dully is unwilling to say that there's anything wrong with Howard. He says that when he loses his temper, he really beats the boy in a cruel fashion whereas he never lays hands on the other boys. Are we seeing a theme of abuse here? Finally, two days after that, he meets with Howard for the first time. He met with everybody else before meeting with Howard. Why wasn't he assessed first? 
When 11-year-old Howard met Freeman for the first time, he liked him. This makes me feel so sad and angry at the same time because Howard was starving for attention and kindness, and Freeman was a manipulative jerk playing with a child's mind. What a creep. And this is what Howard wrote. Freeman at first seemed like a kind, gentle, and dapper man. I liked him at once. He paid attention to me. When he asked me questions, he actually listened to the answer. He put me at ease with his soft and warm eyes. He smiled at me. He asked Howard about Lou, if he disliked her, and why, if he did, and if he wanted to hurt her. And this is what Howard said. I said that I didn't want to hurt her, but I did want to get away from her. I told him that she spanked me and that I got the wrath of my father when he got home. So after that first meeting, really all that Freeman reported was Howard's physical assessment, his physical appearance. But in this report, I found something really interesting. Freeman talked about how he would like to take Howard hiking, which was one of Freeman's favorite things to do. So if Howard was such a bad kid, why would he want to spend time with him and take him hiking? It's a constant contradiction. Freeman met with Howard again a week later, and he assessed that Howard is rather evasive about talking about things that go on in the home. Walter also talked about Rodney not being mentally, emotionally, or physically present to the family. The third visit with Howard was a week after that. Howard wrote, It was almost like he didn't know what to do with me. In fact, Freeman had written, Howard does not dwell on the fact that he is discriminated against. Freeman saw Howard four times, and based on his notes, the more time he spent with him, the more normal Howard seemed. Remember, he even wanted to take him hiking. Now, this really pissed off Lou. She was pulling out the big guns now. No mercy. She was trying to destroy Howard, even if it destroyed her in trying. She spewed off a list of cruel lies. She had become completely unhinged. And this is what Freeman wrote about the visit. Mrs. Dully came in for a talk about Howard. Things have gotten much worse during the last two to three months, and she can barely endure it. Poor Lou. I just want to pull my hair out. So Freeman had heard enough. It was time to take action. So I asked myself, why? What was the basis? Mr. and Mrs. Black tell a story of a normal boy who is getting terribly abused. His father even says that he felt that Howard was normal, but that he also beats him. Freeman can't really find anything wrong with him. And six other doctors find him normal, and four of them think that Lou is the problem. So the fire has been lit, and it's being fueled by Freeman and Lou, and it's beginning to surround and trap Howard. He has no idea what's happening. He was being blindsided all the while, and he thinks he's making a friend in Freeman. The more I read about this and study all this cruelty, I know that for a fact, one of my favorite true crime podcasts would probably be writing a true crime vigilante story about me. 
Walter considered trying to get Howard into a children's ward, Langley Porter Hospital, which is a famous neuropsychiatric unit in the University of California. But he didn't even try because he said Howard was a schizophrenic and wouldn't respond to psychotherapy. In other words, the hospital wouldn't have admitted Howard because they wouldn't have found anything wrong with Howard, and Walter knew this. Walter used schizophrenia as a catchphrase when he wanted to lobotomize someone or he couldn't give them a diagnosis. Remember, Freeman wasn't a psychiatrist. He was a neurologist. He used the diagnosis of schizophrenia to give himself permission to lobotomize a person. And under his diagnosis, you can pretty much justify any human behavior as schizophrenia, if you really wanted to. So what was left? His one alternative, the really only thing he was ever going to do, which was to lobotomize Howard. And it was made on November 30th, 1960. Howard's 12th birthday. That was his birthday present. Here's some math for you. Two months, four visits with Lou, four visits with Howard, one visit with Rodney, one visit each with Mr. and Mrs. Black, seven visits that proved Howard to be normal and abused, one sick, demented bitch named Lou, one psychotic, criminal, mad scientist named Freeman. All these numbers in this math problem added up to one lobotomy for an innocent child. I just wanted to read two quotes related to this decision as written by Howard. My uncle Orville told me many years later that my dad told him that he felt like God when he signed the papers giving Freeman permission to give me the lobotomy. The next quote. It was like the train had already left the station and everyone knew about it but me. I was the only person on the train and I was the only one who didn't know where it was going. It was agreed that no one would tell me about the operation. Howard was told that he was going to the hospital for some tests. He was a kid. He liked the idea that he'd miss out in school and get fussed over by pretty nurses. He'd get to chill out in bed and watch whatever he wanted to on TV. He also looked forward to eating some jello. He had never had jello before, so to him it was a fun thing to look forward to. It was like he was on a little vacation from his terrible living conditions. And ironically, this hospital, this place where he would be brutalized and brain damaged, was one of the only few times that he was treated with kindness. Howard was admitted to Doctors General Hospital a small private hospital. He was admitted on December 15, 1960. His dad drove him and dropped him off like it was no big deal. He got a private room and he experienced all the fun things that he hoped for, like jello and TV and cute nurses. He had some blood drawn and x-rays, vitals measured, and everything checked out normal. He enjoyed the rest of the evening and fell asleep. The next thing that Howard remembered, as written by him, quote, I don't remember anything that happened next. I don't remember waking up the next morning. 
I don't remember being prepared for surgery. I don't remember seeing Freeman. I don't remember anything from that morning. The whole Friday disappeared. Then it was over. I remember waking up the next day, which would have been a Saturday, and I felt bad. My head hurt. I had a fever. They kept taking blood and giving me shots. I thought something was going wrong. What happened with the tests? To sedate Howard, Freeman did what he usually did, was use electric shop. And this is what Freeman wrote. Quote, Howard came around rather quickly after the first shock. I eventually gave him four, after which he was quite slow in recovery. I think it was one more than necessary. Further, there was an escape of a small amount of bloodstained fluid from each eye socket. I did not get much swelling. However, he did have a considerable amount of vomiting during the night and had been incontinent once. Otherwise, everything was normal. <laughs> really. Howard was showing classic signs and symptoms of a profound head injury. Now let's talk about the lobotomy post-op. Howard instinctively knew that something terrible had happened to him. He was only 12. No one had told him what was happening to him. He went to sleep feeling like a boy who was getting a little vacation and some kindness and woke up with a horrible, intentionally inflicted head injury. He also had meningitis from Freeman's dirty practice and procedure. Remember, Freeman didn't believe in that germ crap. You think he... This is going to sound crazy, but you think if he was going to lobotomize a child that he would have taken extra precautions. So this was in Freeman's doctor's notes. Howard had a rough time over the weekend. His temperature went up to 102.4 degrees. His neck was stiff and he had a severe headache and was quite sluggish. Freeman did the terribly dangerous Jiffy spinal tap on Howard, if you remember, which was instead of going in his lower back, he went into his neck very close to his brainstem. His white blood cell count was hugely elevated. A normal white cell count is zero to five. Howard's was 4,000. A normal red blood cell count is zero. His was 90,000, which means, of course, blood in his cerebral spinal fluid because he had a severe head injury. He was bleeding. They treated him with penicillin for the infection, which cleared it up. The spinal tap, the infection, and the excess ECT left him really weak. But Howard was discharge stable. Like Howard, as you heard him speak before, said, this tragic debilitating procedure, assault, took only 10 minutes and $200. Howard didn't remember going home. His brother Brian was sent away, and when he returned, Brian remembers the following. Quote, You were sitting up in bed with two black eyes. You look listless and sad, like a zombie. It's not a nice word to use, but it's the only word to use. You were zoned out and staring. I was in shock and sad. It was just terribly sad. 
Lou had told Brian that Howard had an operation to make him less violent. And Brian didn't think Howard was violent at all, and he was afraid that if he got in trouble, he might get a, a lobotomy as well. Howard said, I might have been a zombie for a while, but I was not a vegetable. He had some aggression after surgery, which is to be expected, and had amnesia for quite a long time. Freeman called this the echo period, as a delicate time after surgery when the patient should be babied, not to be put under any stress. On January 4th, Howard was back in Freeman's office, and this is what Freeman said to him. Quote, I told Howard what I had done to him, and he took it without a quiver. He took it without a quiver because he had no idea what was going on. He had no idea what he was talking about. How could a 12-year-old boy understand what happened to him, let alone a 12-year-old boy with a brain injury? I can just picture the conversation. The stupid ass thought it was completely appropriate to sit down with a 12-year-old boy and tell him he was lobotomized without parents. Freeman visited the family and observed that Howard was not troubled by anything, that he seemed almost happy. That's exactly what you want a child to be, almost happy. A week after that, Freeman took Howard and two other young lobotomy patients for a presentation at the Langley Porter Clinic. After the presentation, Walter drove Howard home and as a gift, he gave this recently lobotomized, quote-unquote, bad child, schizophrenic child, a pocket knife. <laughs> Lou told him that he already had one and she had hidden it from him and taken it away. And Freeman pretty much said, let me know how it goes. <laughs> what the hell? Oh, God. The next couple of months, Howard continued to live in a fog. Lou continued to get more and more agitated with Howard. Everyone else, including Freeman, was reporting that Howard was quite passive and easier to get along with. And he was a zombie, which was a common effect of a lobotomized person. And this is the report Freeman wrote, quote, At the present time, they are inclined to call him lazy, stupid, dummy, and so on. But Howard seems rather serene through all of this and doesn't seem to be upset by such things. He doesn't go off and sulk and brood over things. He's sleeping well and eating well, although his table manners are deplorable. Lou was hell-bent on destroying Howard's life. Her cruelty just astounds me. She kept reporting false and exaggerated stories to Freeman. Apparently, the surgery wasn't satisfying her need to shape Howard into the boy she wanted. I don't think there was anything that Howard could have done that would have pleased her. She just wanted him gone. But not just gone. She wanted to hurt him badly. So she had him brain damaged. And that wasn't enough. Before that, she had him kicked out. And now she wanted him out again. So since the lobotomy wasn't enough, Lou pushed for Howard to be removed from the house. As per Freeman, Mrs. Dully says she has to spend all her time keeping Howard separated from the other boys since his behavior is difficult in the extreme. Bullshite. Howard spends so much time alone 
Howard's memory began to return by the spring of 1961. By April, Lou had thrown him out of the house. Howard was moved into the home of an elderly lady by the name of Mrs. McGraw and her husband. They had two boys of their own, and Howard liked it there. He was treated kindly and had some boys to play with. They attended school, and he was tutored from home. He stayed there for several months and would likely have stayed longer, except it became a financial burden for his father. Their resolution? Having 12-year-old Howard placed into a state mental hospital. Freeman set up a meeting with the Napa State Hospital in March, and the doctors reported back that Howard was not qualified for residence or hospitalization because he wasn't psychotic. They contacted Santa Clara County to have him made a ward of the state so that the state would pay for Howard's care at Mrs. McGraw's. So he was listed as a dependent child, a category usually reserved for abused, malnourished, or otherwise not living in a safe home. So ironically, he was given this designation as a way to have things paid for, but in fact, that's exactly what was happening. So his bill for being cared for went from 180 a month to $70 a month. But then things got even more ridiculous. Not with Mr. and Mrs. McGraw, but with Rodney and his selfishness. Mrs. McGraw was a religious woman, and Howard's father was not. She wasn't a religious freak. She was kindly religious. And he didn't want Howard to be in a household where religion was important. So after all of that, wheeling and dealing and designations and everything, Howard was to be removed from the home. So yeah, this is the logic of his father. Better to be in an abusive home rather than a religious home. Now, I'm not a religious person. I do have my own spiritual beliefs. But kindness wins over abuse every time. But Lou would have none of it. Even though Freeman reported that Howard seemed to be improving. Now, of course, Freeman would report that Howard is improving because he needs to have Howard improve to satisfy his research. That would go against Lou, who didn't want Howard to improve because that goes against her agenda. So now the two best buddies are at odds with each other. This next part really makes me quite sad and frustrated for Howard, for things that might have been, for things that could have turned his life around. His maternal grandmother, Daisy, was trying to get back into Howard's life. She had no idea what had been going on with him. She didn't know that Rodney had remarried, and she didn't know that Howard was being abused, and most importantly, that he had been lobotomized. Daisy started writing angry letters demanding to see Howard. She had wrote to Rodney accusing him of, in quotes, concealing Howard's whereabouts from her and concealing the facts about his surgery, a conspiracy of culpable malpractice and avoidance of parental duty. She was championing for Howard. It makes me so angry that she was not able to be in Howard's life. I am convinced that he would have had a good life. There is no perfect family, but he would have had a good life, a way better life. 
She tried so hard. She exposed Walter, Lou, and Rodney, and yet there was no recourse. There was no punishment. She wrote to the hospital administrators the following. Howard has been removed from school and no longer manifests the natural personality his relatives had known as the human being Howard Dully, but rather a strange, disinterested being foreign to his youthful age. Quote, who can assume or give moral authority and take responsibility for such an act? She wrote Freeman and demanded to meet with him. He agreed to, but he said it would cost her 25 bucks. Daisy was obviously outraged, and she wrote to the Santa County Medical Society demanding to see Freeman's credentials and threatening to have them taken away. You can remember, the only credentials he had was as a neurologist, not as a surgeon, not as a psychiatrist. Freeman came close to shiting his pantaloons and took it very seriously. This may have been as close to him getting busted as any time, but it didn't. <laughs> of course. Howard's dad, because he was slighted by Daisy, took Walter's side and said he would back Walter if Daisy went after him. For God's sakes, Rodney would back the man who brain-damaged his son to end a threat with the grandmother who loved him and would have gladly taken care of him, which would have solved all their problems, right? Now, now ego trumps kindness. Daisy showed up at the house one day, and there was a terrible fight, and Rodney screamed, Daisy out of the house, but this didn't stop her. Daisy put out a malpractice suit on Freeman and Daisy kept at it for the next four years. And then her son Gordon picked up where she left off. But there is no information on the outcome of these lawsuits. The fact was that his grandmother and uncle kept fighting for him and he had no idea that they were. Rodney made the decision to take Howard home come September away from Mrs. McGraw because she was going to enroll him in church. And he did not want Howard to be enrolled in church, and he wanted him to attend Covington Junior High where he worked. Lou was very angry about this. She had tried everything she could do to get rid of him, and the only weapon left in her arsenal, arsehole, <laughs> was to threaten to leave if Howard were to move back home. I say good riddance. Both Rodney and Freeman had reported that Howard had improved and that he was well enough to go home. So Rodney moved Howard out of Mr. and Mrs. McGraw's loving home and moved him in with his brother, Howard's uncle, Gene. And then they went on a lovely family vacation together and left Howard by himself with his uncle. And while they were on vacation, Freeman kept trying to find a place for Howard to live outside of the home. Lou got her way. Howard remained with his uncle and attended the seventh grade at Herbert Hoover Junior High, at least for a little while. His uncle Gene was his dad's eldest brother. He was a good guy. He was good with kids, and he had two sons himself, aged 11 and 13. They knew that Howard had a lobotomy, but he and his sons never teased him or treated him differently. Gene was a school teacher as well. 
Howard was having some trouble in school, not with his studies, but with his memory and social skills. He had poor coordination and lack of interest in appearance, which are all the results of his lobotomy. Howard stayed there for an entire school year. However, his time seemed to be coming to an end. His aunt was having a difficult time caring for Howard. This is a report from Freeman. She is of the opinion that she has done as much as she can for the boy. She said that he was no more trouble than the other boys that she has, but is different from them, that he is aloof. So another person had given up on Howard. And I don't think her reason was a good one. Maybe she was just being tactful. And I could understand her not wanting to raise him. It, it wasn't her child. It's just that he was such an abused and lost soul. So was this a good opportunity for Howard to go home? No. Lou had had a hysterectomy after being diagnosed with cervical cancer and she was recovering at home and could not have Howard move back. As it turned out, Lou was a little bit of a hypochondriac and had a pill for everything. Might explain some of her behavior. After a major struggle between Rodney and Lou, Rodney won out and Howard would be returning home again. He moved back into the house in August, and of course, Lou started up complaining and making up crap immediately. And this is what she reported to Freeman. He tyrannizes over the two little boys, Brian and Kirk. Mrs. Dully says that Howard is liberal with the truth, like she should friggin' talk. But the two boys are frequently upset because Howard uses bad language, tells stories, messes up their rooms, and seems to take some malicious pleasure in having them run to mama. She also reported that Rod was getting more upset by Howard and was alienating himself from the family. He was probably just trying to get away from her. As for Howard, he said that he spends most of his time in his room and avoids his father. That on a whole, he was much of the same. The talk of getting rid of Howard started again. In August of 1962, they started looking for another foster home. And by January 1963, he was still at home and Lou was losing her shite. Having temper tantrum after temper tantrum, her lies about Howard were becoming worse and she was willing to say just about anything. And here's another quote. This boy is just what he used to be. He contributes to nothing. He won't bathe, and the only difference she sees now is that he no longer plays with his feces and is not vicious. He seems to take things and is getting worse and worse at school, so that the principal at Covington has suggested that though he is in 8th grade, he should be shifted to the mental retardation group or altogether removed from school. Mr. Dudley does not take kindly to this and seems to believe that physical punishment will bring the boy around. He is quite punitive with the boy, saying that he will whip him to death if necessary. Mrs. Dully is fed up with the situation, is planning a separation, unless Howard is removed from the family. During that time, Lou had exploded at Howard after getting angry at him for something or other, and this is what she said to him. This is why we had you operated on, and you still won't behave. Go to your room. What an ad sick and twisted admission to guilt that was. Although Howard wasn't violent in any way, Rodney couldn't beat him anymore because he was six feet tall and almost as big as his father. So they decided that Howard was big enough to live on his own. They started looking for a rooming house for him to move into. He was 14 years old. 
Here's a quote from Freeman. With Howard and Mr. Dully present, I said Howard would have to leave his home and that he was big enough and ugly enough, with absolute cruelty, to be established in a room of his own with an allowance and that he would have to get along somehow, that he could no longer remain at home, would have to be rejected by family in order to keep Mrs. Dully at home with her other boys. If Howard wasn't able to make the grade, he would have to go into an institution. Wow, they had really just set this poor kid up for failure every time, and it is one attack of cruelty after the other since he was seven years old. So in order to make that uh, Lou happy, and for her to have things her way, a lobotomized 14-year-old boy would have to be moved out of his house again and live in an apartment on his own. How was he going to manage? How was he going to know how to fully care for himself? How to feed himself? How to manage a budget? Go to school? In other words, it was impossible and he would be institutionalized. Things had gotten worse at school. He had gotten suspended and then expelled. That didn't worry Howard too much because he saw it as an extended holiday and that he would just return back to school in January. So he spent his time riding his bike and exploring and he stayed out of trouble. He was actually given some freedom and he was able to have a little enjoyment in his life. But that only lasted for a little while. Howard would not be staying at home much longer. He was going to be admitted to Agnew's State Mental Hospital, known as the Great Hospital for the Insane. I'm going to end here because I have just spoken of so much information today. Too much to absorb, probably. Part three will discuss the rest of Howard's life and the trials and tribulations that he went through, how he was able to overcome all of this. So I look forward to that episode coming up. And I would really like it if you would join me. But it's not over yet. Because it's time for the... Let's hear everybody now. Suit your room, 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 room. So come on in and have a lie down on the comfy stretcher. I had the old one removed and a new one placed. So it doesn't have as many bald spots and lumpy bits. So sit down and hear that noise as all the air comes out of the cushions. Here's an extra pillow and a warm, comfy blankie and a little cup of cranberry juice and a cup of ice and a cup of apple juice. Mix it together. It's so choice. So here we go. Enjoy my little tale, that's true, of a wild and wacky and weird experience that I had while working in the ER. Here we go. Not all things that happen in the ER are horrible, tragic, or gruesome. This is the case in the story I'm about to tell you. I had worked a shift that seemed to go on forever. It was 
unbelievably busy. We didn't get any breaks all night. The acuity or sickness level in department was very high and there was one trauma after the other. As the shift was ending, we had been going around to our patients and making sure that all the morning vital signs had been done, medications had been given, all the nurses' notes had been written up and reports were ready, and that all the patients were stable and ready for the next shift to take over. Sometimes during shift change, an ambulance may come in to drop off a patient or pick up a patient to take them back home. The timing can never be predicted. You don't choose when an ambulance shows up. So in this case, we had a patient that was to be picked up and taken back to their nursing home. This was a lovely lady who had come in with a high fever. She had a urinary tract infection. She was unable to go to the bathroom on her own and often had to urinate into a diaper. It's unfortunate. She was blind and very elderly and needed help with that. So this led to her urinary tract infection. We had gotten her stable, got her on some antibiotics, fever under control, and the nursing home was able to carry on with the care we suggested. The thing is we had given her lots of fluids to help her with dehydration. So she was having to urinate a lot. Just before the shift ended and the ambulance came, we checked on the lady one last time and she had been incontinent of a large amount of urine. So we had to give her a bed bath, change her clothes back into her own clothing and get her ready to put on the stretcher. We were beyond tired. And when I say we, it was another nurse that we were helping each other. We were beyond exhausted. And sometimes when you get really, really, really tired, you get the giggles. And this was the case here. We had changed the lady, gave her a nice bath, changed her and put her in her clothes. When we were ready to have her be moved onto the stretcher, my colleague, their face started to turn red. They were bent over giggling, but not trying to laugh out loud because we didn't want the patient to think that we were laughing or she was laughing at them. You know, it's uncomfortable sometimes when you have the giggles, you're so tired, but you can't stop laughing just because of those reasons. So I'm looking at my colleague and saying, like mouthing saying, what's going on? What's so funny? Why are you laughing? And they couldn't tell me because they were just laughing, 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 laughing. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? So they indicate for me to come over to their side of the bed and to look at their gown. And what they had done, instead of having the lady's arm come out of the armhole of her nightgown, she had pulled her boob out (laughs) instead. (laughs) So this poor lady was lying on the stretcher with one arm out of her nightgown and instead of her arm, her boob hanging out of the armhole with her arm beside her underneath. So it made for a very interesting sight It looked like this lady had some very strange type of amputation that involved having a nipple on the end of her stump. (laughs) 
it may sound like that we're, we're it may sound like we're very cruel and careless and mean people but we're not when you're super tired and you see something like that and you totally did not mean to do it sometimes you just you laugh and the elderly lady was so good about it and she understood and you know for the next 10 minutes we just couldn't stop laughing it just it just we couldn't and it was so difficult to give report but eventually we will we were able to do it and allow a few other than nurses coming on to shift to have a bit of a giggle so that's my story for today i hope you enjoyed it i look forward to my next episode coming up in another two weeks and everybody have a wonderful day evening or night So thank you for joining me on STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, where sometimes even the cure can kill you.